Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're coming at you with listener mail today. Now, our loyal mailbot, Carney, has been through some changes. That's right. Uh, he's been uh, he's been off in Fatberg City. He's been helping uh, Officer Fatberg uh, battle uh, the city's uh, Fatberg problem. That's right. And in the course of fighting a Fatberg, which of course turned out to be sentient and uh, alive, uh, I guess that goes without saying. You can't yeah. be sentient without being alive. Right. But not for long. Um, or maybe you can. Yeah, that's subject for another day. Anyway, like the black ooze in Prometheus, part of that fatberg just got right on into Carney. It took over part of his processor. Now he's fatberg inside, fatberg power, uh, fatberg logic, and he's part fatberg bot forever. Little flies come out of his nooks and crannies. <laughs> oh, I think that's just temporary. I think this is going to be a, an equilibrium that is reached. And to whatever extent... Carney can be fueled by fatbergs. Um, you know, I think that's exciting. I think that's the future. Uh, that's actually going to be the topic of, of another episode uh, we're going to be recording. Uh, I have an episode of Invention coming up. What happens when robots can eat fatbergs? Uh-huh. We'll find out. But this episode is about listener mail, and we did receive a lot of really cool listener mail regarding our episode on fatbergs. Now, just, just to refresh, uh, uh, to remove some of the uh, you know the, the sci-fi fun uh, here that we've been uh, throwing out for a second, a fatberg is this uh, large mass that accumulates in a modern sewer system, or even in kind of I guess an archaic sewer system, but due to modern sewage problems, uh, mostly caused by the flushing or the or the, the dumping of of grease. Uh, and the flushing of sanitary wipes, uh, wet wipes, yes. primarily, yeah, the, like ninety nine percent of the problem with the with the wipe things or mm-hmm. these things that are wet wipes. And apparently, we heard from a lot of listeners, even people who worked in uh, you know sewer maintenance, sewer workers, who said that these things that are so called flushable wet wipes are not flushable. Don't flush them, even if they say you can. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I have a kid. I've have used wet wipes plenty of times, and after you use them, you want to be rid of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to throw them into a magical, um, uh, you know, vat of water and then pushing a button and watching it disappear, that's, that's an attractive idea when you have uh, a poop-smeared uh, uh, wet wipe. But uh, it doesn't really disappear. It goes somewhere, and then it, uh, it, it makes friends. It becomes the bones of the soap dragon. That's right. Uh, so maybe we should get right to our first email. This one comes from Ray. Robert, you want to read this one? Sure. Hello, Robert and Joe. My name is Ray, and I could not believe how close to home the episode of Fatbergs landed. I am currently a sewer utility worker uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And prior to serving uh, in the Army for several years, I was a sewer utility worker in Jersey City, New Jersey. The issue of grease infiltrating our country's sewers seems to be almost a universal problem with no real end in sight. Although there are significant differences in the capacity and complexity between the two sewer systems I have personal experience with, the effects of grease and non-biodegradable solids, such as wet wipes and feminine hygiene products, seems to be universal. In my experience, I have seen and worked on many grease-related issues, and though I have seen some large blockages, the issues I have come to find most common or more are more like grease tubes. <laughs> the initial blockage creates a type of grease dam, which in turn leads to the sewer pipe becoming completely impacted with grease. Picture this as a tube of toothpaste. 
These <laughs> issues can run for hundreds of feet underground and can require days of work to clear. The comparison made in the articles you read about it in concrete cannot be more accurate. When trying to relieve a fatberg-induced blockage, quote, chipping away at the grease uh, gestalt monstrosity with mason tools is surprisingly effective and brings to mind archaeologists using picks and hammers trying to reveal the hidden past and secrets the fatbergs hold in its subterranean lipid vaults. <laughs> That's good. One point that I noticed was not mentioned that absolutely needs mentioning was the surprisingly distinct smell that grease blockages have, which, if one enjoys fried foods, could actually be appetite-inducing. Huh. Each of the several grease blockages I have dealt with had a small had a smell scape that one could use to easily identify the main contributor to its unholy birth, whether it be pizzerias, Chinese food takeout, or even a rather famous diner located in downtown Jersey City. Nothing makes you look forward to lunch like the smell of comfort food wafting up from the depths of the sewer. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you again, guys, for never failing to surprise me with your awesome topics. This one in particular, Fatbergs, made me realize that uh, even something as mundane-sounding as sewer utility work it can be interesting. As a final side note, I would often try and tell people how serious grease problems can be in sewers and how large and lengthy they could be. It reminded me of another episode of yours, Great Wave, in which stories would be told by wayward sailors, often describing waves whose proportions seemed drastically exaggerated. I feel a shared kindred with these sailors, knowing that grease abominations lurk below the streets and those who I tell my tales to disregard them as exaggerated fantasy. LOL. Thanks again, Ray. Well, we don't disregard them, Ray. We believe every word. Yeah, uh, yes. Except I'm, I am a little skeptical about the, the appetite-inducing qualities of the sewer smell. Well, I, th- I think we have some other listener mail that, that speaks to the odor, but— I don't know. I can imagine. I mean, I trust Ray on the matter. I mean, he he has experience that I do not have regarding right. uh, fatbergs and their uh, unholy kin. So uh, if he says there's an appetizing odor, then I, I believe it. I guess what I mean is th- the only thing I doubt is whether it would be appetizing to lots of people or to everyone. Uh, uh, that seems like it would probably vary person to person, especially depending on uh, how maybe your disgust reflexes and how sensitive they are. Oh, you mean to fast food or to just in general? No, I mean to, to general, like the association. I mean, we, we know a lot about how uh, – smell is in some ways cognitive. You know, Mm -hmm. we've talked on the show before about how the exact same smell, if you're told it's a cheese, it smells good. But if you're told you're smelling socks and it's the exact same chemical stimulant, uh, it's disgusting. It makes you, you know, you find it revolting. And I think the same thing would probably be true. You know, there are different levels of sensitivity, but like you can smell a smell that would maybe smell good if it's coming out of a restaurant kitchen. But if you smell it in a sewer, it might give you the gag reflex. Right. But then if you're working in a sewer, like... I don't know. It might turn things around. Like you're you're in there so long exposed to this different smellscape. Mm-hmm. And if there's a hint of something even that is, uh, you know, from beyond the sewer, then perhaps, you know, the human mind can latch on to that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, there's also, if I remember correctly, in our past episodes about smell, we've discussed how, you know, how about good smells and bad smells and about how bad smells can sort of fade into the background a bit while good smells remain in the forefront. Hmm. Uh, I believe I have that right. Um, so, but, but at any rate, there's there's a lot going on when we perceive odors, like even very strong odors. You know, some may be uh, de-stressed and others remain stressed 
uh, in uh, at least as far you know as far as our perceptions go. Right, because there might be different adaptive reasons for the brain to uh, remain aware of certain kinds of odors, but not of others once you've initially smelled them. Right, so maybe that would allow room for like the the pleasing odor that is mixed in amongst the foul odor, odors to sort of uh, resonate more after a while. But does, this is just me guessing. Does the Yankee Candle Company make a Fatberg candle? I don't know, but uh, uh, we did discuss in that episode some of the possibilities of of using Fatbergs for fuel. Yeah. Uh, Well, we actually have a great piece of uh, listener mail about this. Oh, let's do it. uh, Let's see here. This one, this is a short one. This comes from Damien. Damien, subject line, Fatbergs are real. Hello from Little Rock. Fatbergs, sweet Jesus. Those things can ruin your life. (laughs) My wife's grandparents had no qualms with pouring bacon grease down the sink. They had apparently been doing so for the last 70 years. A Reuter company worker that we hired uh, told us that our pipes were worse off than a Waffle House. I dug up ancient clay pipes, and they were packed with the same stuff that's clogging sewers worldwide. It's a soap-like material that is fairly stinky and very lightweight. I actually lit it on fire while it was still wet. I'll include the fire video and offer to send you a sample of the berg itself. (laughs) If you want some, let me know. I love your shows. Keep it up. Damien. Okay, Damien, I don't think we need a sample of the berg, but I did watch the video and dude, yeah, it's like, it's like a tiny grease fire in puck form. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I glanced at this video as well, and it is uh, yeah, it's, it's really flaming up there. It's kind of it's kind of making spitting sounds that might have to do with water content or the fact that it's wet. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say don't send us a piece of fatberg. I <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's leave that up to the stochastic gods of, of fatberg fate. Okay, uh, I think I'm going to do this next one here from our listener Joe. In fact. Hi, Robert and Joe. My name is also Joe, and I'm a plumber that listens to your podcast. No, not that plumber. I live in the state of Alabama. I routinely listen to your podcast on my way to job sites. Having been a service plumber in the past, I have to tell you that Donnie Don't made me twitch a little. Uh, I think we started off the Fatberg episode with some don't do what Donnie Don't does. Right. uh, Pouring – pouring duck fat down the bathtub and stuff. Joe continues, Donna Don't, who also flushes sanitary products and plants shrubs over the residential sewer line, would have made me twitch a lot more. I don't care if the packaging says flushable or not. Anything small enough to fit down a toilet is flushable. That doesn't mean you should flush it. I could flush one liter water bottles down some toilets or even a bucket full of golf balls. (laughs) There are even some that I wholly believe could flush small children, but that does not mean it's a good idea. That being said, my city doesn't have a sewer system that you can walk around in as it's more modern. However, I do have some grease stories that may interest you. Oh, and old grease is the single worst thing to smell in plumbing, narrowly beating out old urine. You would think that it's the poo, but it's not. Of course, I haven't had the displeasure of cleaning the lines at a morgue or funeral home. I know some who have, and I will not regale you with those stories, I'm sure you can imagine. To preface these stories, restaurants are required to have a grease interceptor in their line going out, and they do just what the name implies. They intercept and hold the grease. However, in one case, that was overlooked by the city. When I was an apprentice, we received a service call to a dentist's office that was backing up with raw sewage. The building was roughly 10 feet above the city sewer, and it was also the lowest of the surrounding buildings. After confirming that the lines to the city sewer were clear, we decided to pop a 
a manhole cover, the road's dirt and grime had sealed it down. This heavy cast-iron manhole cover then proceeded to float, albeit briefly, on the flood of water, among other things that rose from the manhole. (laughs) It then had to direct traffic away from this open manhole as we waited for the city's jet truck to come clear the line. I think the jet truck is like high-pressure water. This was a very busy four-lane road in the downtown of my city. I almost got run over several times as people swerved into the other lane within feet of me. I digress. When the truck arrived, the 12-inch city main was blocked for 200 feet by, you guessed it, Fat and Grease, where this restaurant's line joined the cities. They had been pouring all of their oil down the drains. On another note, as an apprentice again, I have personally stood on one foot on top of hardened grease in an interceptor at another restaurant. The grease was about a foot thick and weighed about 200 pounds at the time, and it did not give. We had to take a steel bar to it to break it up so that it could be pumped out. I wouldn't say that it's as hard as concrete, but still rock-like. I'm looking forward to more awesome episodes from you guys, Joe. All right, another field report from the the war against the Fatbergs. That is an epic tale of a heroic struggle. Uh, I wish I only had uh, the you know the the mind of a Homer to translate it into poetry. <laughs> Uh, but, I, hey, you know, one thing we did in that Fatberg episode is we proposed a movie crossover, uh, which would be Fatberg Cop. Yes. And yeah, we, Officer Fatberg. Yeah. Uh, so we asked uh, if anybody out there is, uh, you know, developer in Hollywood or anything, get Fatberg Cop <laughs> going. Uh, we did hear back from uh, a couple of people, a couple of creative types who engage with Fatbergs one way or another. We heard from one listener named Tom who shared with us a story he had written about a Fatberg that becomes sentient. This was independent of our episode. He'd already written it in the past. Uh, But we also heard from our listener, L. Robert, do you want to read this one? Yes. L writes, quote, I recently listened to your episode on Fatbergs. You had mentioned how it would be cool to create an artist rendition of an anthropomorphic, murderous, and justice-seeking Fatberg. Well, being an artist myself, I could think of nothing more than to do just this. I wanted to make the creature humanoid, but also not too human. I ended up with some sort of lizard man cop made of congealed grease. And it turned out uh, more sane than I would have liked. Make of that what you will. Maybe Fatberg really is the hero. Nevertheless, I enjoyed making this 80s-style poster art. Robert had mentioned never visiting Philly. Well, come on by. I can't recommend it enough. Also, I recently visited the Mütter Museum uh, the week before the episode. This is, of course, the museum with all sorts of cool um, medical um, oddities, I guess you'd say, medical... Anomalous grim, medical yeah, history. Grim artifacts of medical history, et cetera. I've long wanted to, to visit there and just never have had the chance. It came up in the episode because we were talking about the process of saponification where like mm, yes. lipid and fatty acids can turn into soap-like substances. And one example is uh, a thing that's within the Mütter Museum's collection, the Soap Lady, and I think also a, a male uh, corpse, the Soap Man, uh, which are covered in this soap-like material called adipocere that's formed out of the lipids and flesh as it uh, decays in certain types of environments, I think like alkaline environments. All right, L continues. I was looking for something to do with friends while nearby, though sadly not knowing what I was getting myself into. Listening to your description of the soap lady instantly brought a haunting image to my head of the corpse that visitors are greeted with as they entered the main room. 
uh, this uh, the main room of the Muter Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, le- at least I think it was. It, I wasn't going to stick around to read the description. As soon as I realized what I got myself into, I tried to leave as soon as I could. Although I can see its importance as medical history and, and, uh, and its importance for research, the idea of dead body and fetuses on display just didn't settle well with me. Not to say others would have, would have a different experience. At the very uh, least, it was a unique experience. I attached uh, the work of Officer Fatberg below. I loved listening to your episode, as I always do, and I loved listening to your show every time I drive or commute. Keep it up, L from Philly. Okay, so for starters, this art uh, that L uh, gave us is tremendous. And as of this recording, I've re- requested that we be allowed to share this with the world uh, on the, uh, the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. So hopefully that'll be the case, and you all can go check it out for yourself. It's pretty fun. It's reminiscent of things like Maniac Cop and, uh-huh. and so forth. And then secondly, uh, yeah, I have to uh, admit that I can, as interested as I am in, vin- in visiting the Muter Museum, I can imagine it's not everybody's cup of tea and not necessarily everybody's cup of tea every day. Right. Like I, you know, some of my interests run uh, or have run darker or more morbid at times, but there are days where I don't, do not want to see a soap person or, <laughs> or some sort of pickled uh, remains. I mean... Uh, for instance, I just watched, uh, this is completely off topic, but I just watched The Deathly Hallows Part 1 uh, last H- night. Harry Potter? Harry Potter and okay. The Deathly Hallows Part 1 last night with my family. And the film was a lot darker than I remember it being uh, to the point where it really, I felt kind of bummed out and depressed <laughs> after finishing it. Really? Yeah, I don't know if my, my tastes have just changed a lot um, Recently, but it's like like that was just it was that was too dark of a film for me yesterday. Uh, is maybe, it is Deathly Hallows the last one? It's well, it's the first part of the last one. It's the so it's the okay. penultimate movie in the the Harry Potter sequence of films. Okay, so it is it does have kind of um, ultimately an Empire Strikes Back kind of ending because it's like all these terrible things that are happening mm-hmm. and all these trials that the characters are put through. And it's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. I I, I think it's a tremendously impressive what they did with it. And I'm I I love Harry Potter. Uh, as much as anybody, but whew, that one, I felt like it really put me through the ringers. So there are days when I am not in the mood for the darkness of a Harry Potter film. There are days when I'm, I'm definitely not in the mood uh, to see um, a, a human cadaver uh, that has been partially turned into soap. Fair enough, Robert. I will never try to force you to go look at the soap lady if you're not feeling it. Right. And if somebody sends us a, a fat bird chunk, you know, it, maybe it'll be the day uh, day when I'm totally up for looking at it. Maybe it'll be a day when I just need to, um, you know, ask you to keep the bag closed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we need to take a quick break, but we will be right back. All right, we're back. So Carney has given us the sign that we need to move on from Fatbergs. Um, okay. He is, he is he's full of Fatbergs. He's currently processing it, digesting it, turning it into energy. So we're going to move on uh, to some other episodes that we did, some listener feedback uh, on them, particularly uh, our episode uh, re- concerning the fundamental attribution error. Right. Now, this was uh, a while back, so we did some messages about this on the last listener mail episode, but I think this one came in since then. This is from our listener, Matthew. Matthew says, greetings. So I am eagerly awaiting tonight's finale episode of Game of Thrones. It is one of the few shows or movies that I value experiencing along with the rest of the world. This 
last season has been taking a lot of flack from online critics, and I myself have felt the decline in quality. While thinking through the seasons and talking to my wife, I came to the conclusion that it was mainly because of characters acting out of their expected behaviors as established over the past seven seasons. Uh, Having listened to your recent cast on Fundamental Attribution Error, I began to think about the story's players on a grander scale, about the society, and why the characters within that society are acting the way they are, as opposed to out of solely personal motivations. It made me feel so intelligent when I came across this article by an actual smart person discussing this very subject with direct references to fundamental attribution error. Basically, the show's focus switched from a broad society-based story, where something like the death of a main character progressed the narrative for everyone else, and he uh, says that that's more in line with George R. R. Martin's novels, and it switched to an individual focus narrative where each character's own psychology is being explored, which is the Hollywood screenwriter's more common approach. Mm-hmm. Thank you for equipping me to think about even mundane things like TV shows about dragons on a deep, almost academic level. Keep up the good work. Invention is awesome. You guys have long been the first thing I look for in my new releases list each week. Matthew. And Matthew links to this article he's talking about. And this is one I'd seen shared around a while, but I actually didn't read it until just today. It's an article in Scientific American uh, by Zainab Tufekci, who's who's a really good writer. Uh, I'd seen it going around, but I'm glad I read it because I think I pretty much agree with it about a hundred percent. It's very spot on in analyzing how the show's storytelling mode changed over time, especially after the show ran out of book material to work mm, with. Yeah. Um, and and the, the essential idea is that in the, in the books, characters are hugely driven by circumstances, uh, by, you know, the sort of like social pressures on them and the norms they face and by, you know, events outside their control. And we, we, we constantly see characters having to deal with all of these circumstantial pressures and we understand the, the, the influence of circumstantial pressures. And after the book material ran out and the showrunners were more out on their own, it started to feel more like a typical Hollywood screenplay where, like, characters have, like, a main defining personality attribute and everything they do is pretty much in line with that main personality attribute. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting, especially, you know, coming from HBO. And granted, these were different showrunners, but I feel like um, I feel, I feel like uh, the, the Wire, um, for instance, yes. uh, did a great job of really— I think throughout the series, like focusing on the societal pressures that are making people what they are. Yeah, I mean, David Simon in interviews has talked about, you know, like in the in his work, especially in The Wire, like the gods of this Greek tragedy are instead of it being like Zeus and Poseidon and so forth, they're institutions. Yeah, uh, they're uh, you know, it's it's government, it's uh, it's law enforcement, it's uh, it, you know, it, whatever the particular institution is that is applying this pressure to uh, populations, to individuals. And uh, yeah, I feel like that sort of thing is is more evident in the the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones and then uh, almost completely gone in the later uh, seasons, the last couple of seasons particularly. Yeah, and uh, and actually uh, Zainab, Zainab Tufekci makes exactly that comparison to The Wire. Oh, she does. Okay, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah and I think The Wire is a great example of that. A lot of the great shows are like that. In, in a way, even though it's 
it's more focused on uh, on individual psychology. But even The Sopranos is kind of like this. Yeah. It has a it has a sociological kind of feel. There are like there are large movements and pressures and trends at play, and characters you, you constantly see characters struggling with their circumstances and being moved by them, and not just like acting out their dominant personality traits. Right. You know, I, I, I do not want to make it sound like I am attributing Hollywood with all of society's uh, woes or blaming uh, superhero movies in particular. But I, I think it is worth noting that, you know, uh, um, certainly Matthew here mentions the Hollywood screenwriter approach. Yeah. And, and that being focused on individuals. And, of course, Hollywood is epicenter for our, our, our focus on celebrities, to focus on these key individuals that we've sing- singled out for deification and vilification. Mm-hmm. Um to um, to lift up and to sacrifice as need be to satiate our uh, our you know our, our need for some sort of uh, vicarious experience, and um, it's it, I wonder you know what the dangers are in in, in putting that much um, you know cultural power uh, within a single um, you know single system. Yeah. Uh, well, especially one that as we talked about in the episode is is very often given to the fundamental attribution error. I mean, right. like, I think a lot of, especially the weaker, shallower kinds of, you know, popular Hollywood storytelling very much fall into the FAE kind of category where mm-hmm. characters' behaviors are almost entirely explained by their, like, innate qualities and predispositions. And there, there's really not much attention paid to, like, broader trends and societal pressures and circumstances that change the way people are. Right. And... And with superheroes, and and I, I do again. I want to stress that I enjoy superhero movies, and I'm not uh, I'm not meaning to criticize them just across the board. But superhero movies are movies about individuals that are essentially gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they, they may have you know f- flawed characteristics and even very, very human characteristics in some uh, some ways, which can of course be very much in keeping with uh, with you know classical treatments of gods. But they are they are individuals that uh, that uh, that apply pressure more to society or seem to be you know completely removed from societal pressure in some cases, mm-hmm. and. Um, if, if when those are the the dominant stories that we're telling, those are the ones that seem to have the most cultural impact and certainly have the you know the most box office impact. Uh, does that uh, does that just uh, serve to to help reinforce the fundamental attribution error in our popular storytelling? I, I think that's that you could very well make that case. I think that's likely true. That being said, I may be missing some really key examples of. Um, uh, of films, uh, you know, particularly non-Hollywood films, but maybe some big tent pictures as well uh, that um, that run counter to this. So I would love to hear from listeners who have some really good examples uh, of um, uh, of films that avoid the uh, fundamental attribution error. I think there's one reason you more often see uh, like non-FAE storytelling and more like sociological or circumstance-based storytelling in longer television series, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just like having to do with the efficiency of storytelling and runtime. Yeah. It's hard to tell a story that's not a little bit given to the FAE in a short runtime. Right. You know, because you need to identify themes really quickly and and identify who characters are in a memorable way really quickly. You don't have whole seasons to figure out who people are and get a sense of them. Oh, yeah. Well, like with The Wire, for instance, they had the time to provide – uh, characters and secondary characters, primary and secondary characters, 
at all levels of society. Yeah. So you had, you know, you you had people on law enforcement side, people that were uh, in, in the, the criminal element, in the, uh, the the sale and the trafficking of drugs, mm-hmm. but then also the political spectrum, uh, the educational spectrum, you know, and they were able to layer on more from season to season to provide this overall, ultimately holistic picture of how the world worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and doing so, doing that kind of thing, you need time to do that, and it's really hard to tell a story uh, that you know that appropriately treats the, the influence of circumstances and all that without doing something like that. So yeah, I, I can see why this kind of storytelling shows up more often on like the you know the gold standard TV series than it does in movies. Yeah. Yeah, because ultimately, if a you know if a movie can basically cover the ground of a short story, a short story is going to be limited uh, generally to like one POV. Like, there's not a lot, there's generally not much room for anything beyond that. All right. Well, speaking of um, created worlds, uh, we have a correction here. This one comes to us from Steve. Um, I can't even. I, was this a previous listener mail episode we were talking about? Yeah, uh, I think it was on the last listener mail episode we did. Somebody wrote in. Uh, wrote in with an email that incorrectly attributed the author of a story, and we did not catch that. Right. So anyway, Steve writes in and says, on your recent listener email, uh, it was slated that John Scalzi wrote The Forever War. That is incorrect. Joe uh, Halderman wrote The Forever War, which, uh, yeah, this is correct. Uh, Yes, uh, the, uh, the author of The Forever War is Joe Halderman. Okay, we stand corrected. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I, I've read The Forever War, so I should have remembered that one. But uh, at any rate. Uh, stuff goes by really fast while we're sitting here talking. All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from Chris regarding our Almost Cannibals episode. Okay. Which uh, was, you know, a contemplation of, you know, how do we classify things that are not quite cannibalism in the animal world and occasionally in the human world. Uh, they're not quite cannibalism, but they're almost cannibalism. It's like almost Close like, in one way or another. Like pre-cannibalism, right? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Chris writes in and says, hey, checking in on a couple of recent episodes from Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention, and boy, do I have a crossover story for you. In your recent episode on Almost Cannibals, you mentioned a story about an army roasting meat and eating in close proximity to fallen soldiers from an opposing force. Uh, And this, by the way, this was like um, uh, an older, you know, uh, attributed uh, detail from history that, you know, was probably uh, rolled out as a way to criticize the enemy and make them seem more barbaric. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, as if to say, just look at the, these people. They're, they're not cannibals yet, but they're just like just one stumble away from it. Anyway, it continues. And that there were rumors uh, that they, the army were cannibals because of this. Well, my story is about my grandfather, who was in the 95th Infantry Division during World War II. Uh, and he includes a short uh, link to a video uh, about them. He says, uh, he earned his, his a nickname during the war as the buzzard, as an unfortunate part of his job was to remove bodies from the field and take them off uh, uh, the trucks when they returned to the base. The moniker the buzzard was applied because he was known to pull bodies from the truck with one hand and have a ham sandwich in the other. <laughs> Whoa. It's amazing what the human mind can normalize during the horrors of war. I am by no means insinuating that he was a cannibal, but the bit about eating too close to the dead bodies sparked a memory. Uh, the second tie-in comes once he returned home. My grandparents' house was three blocks from our small town, uh, 1,500 to 2,000 people, funeral home. Uh, here is where the camera comes in. You know, we recently did a whole slew of episodes of, of invention about the camera. Mm-hmm. 
Once he came back from the war, uh, he would go uh, to every wake where the person was laid out at the funeral home and take a picture of them in the casket. You mentioned in the episode on the camera about how early photography was used to document deceased relatives. He would then develop the film and annotate the the back of the photograph with name, date of birth, death, etc. And all the photos would be out in, uh, in albums. When he died, he had dozens and dozens of albums filled with these photos. Wow. He never talked about the war or really anything much, but I have to imagine that what he saw while serving changed the way he viewed life and death, and his photographs of those who had died uh, were his own way of remembering them. Cheers, Chris. Wow. Well, that's an interesting story. I don't know what to make about that, but uh, thank you for sharing, Chris. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a very strong point about the horrors of war. I mean, a lot of us, maybe most of, of those listening to us, you know, we, we're far removed from those horrors. Uh, you know, certainly we, we do hear uh, from time to time from individuals who've uh, served in combat situations or in law enforcement uh, environments or, or you know, in some way or another have, uh, have had, uh, you know, uh, this level of violence uh, impact their lives. But for a lot of us, we are removed from it. So, you know, we, we don't know what it's like to have to haul dead bodies around and at the same time deal with the fact that you have to eat. You have to have a sandwich and right. maybe you do have a sandwich in one hand. And then likewise, when it comes to just dealing with uh, with with death, I mean, I, I'm, I'm wondering about this case with the, the grandfather too, like being an, an, uh, you know, an older individual, like uh, perhaps they had memories of... Um, of, of you know of, of a time when there were more there was more photography uh, t- funeral photography taking place and you know they're therefore they're just kind of um, you know returning to those memories and um, and, and doing it themselves hmm. uh, I don't know but uh, but yeah this is certainly all food for thought so it looks like we need to move on to the next uh, group of listener mail this was in response to our episode against the phrase survival of the fittest uh, in in the context of explaining how evolution works and so we got some responses just to the episode in general and we got a number of responses some mega responses to Pokemon uh, which Robert oh, yes. I think you brought up at the end of the episode right yeah I mean part of it just is because I'm I'm too old for Pokemon Uh so I, I or at least I didn't. I never did anything with Pokemon, so I don't have an appreciation for it. But I, I realize, you know, just from being online, that it is really important to many people, and and that Pokemon becomes like a metaphor for understanding various things in life. And so it made me curious about, well, how does that play into um, understandings of evolution? Is it helpful? Is it a hindrance, etc.? Mm-hmm. And so we put that out to listeners to chime in. Uh, we heard from a lot. Well, I think maybe we should do a, a general email about the episode first, and then we'll do the Pokemon one. Okay. Uh, okay, so this first one comes from our listener, Lloyd. Lloyd says, hi, guys. Love your podcast. I listened with interest to your episode on natural selection and survival of the fish. I agree with your point that the latter phrase is not linguistically apt when a modern semblance of the phrase is applied. However, I wondered if this overlooks the fact that fittest may have had a slightly different meaning at the time when Spencer, Wallace, and Darwin were discussing it. Uh, you considered fittest to mean the biggest and the strongest, as in the bigger batterism you talked about. However, the word fittest literally means the best fit, most fit, or most suitable. Fit has only recently come to mean physically fit and has in the past meant something more akin to suitable as in the phrase, 
this man is a fit and proper person. Mm -hmm. In your podcast, you also considered survival to mean survival of the individual. However, it also means survival of the species. Considered this way, survival of the fittest means survival of the species best fitted or you might say most suitable to its environment. I therefore find myself agreeing with Wallace to some extent that it is a good and in some senses better descriptor of the evolutionary process than the phrase natural selection. I would suggest that the better argument for use of the term natural selection is that it suggests a kind of positive advancement or natural refinement. By contrast, survival of the most suitable or the fittest draws on the more nihilistic side of evolution that those who are not the most suitable are destined to decline. That is, of course, true, but it's pretty depressing. Yours faithfully, Lloyd. Um, well, Lloyd, I mean, uh, I, I think I accept a lot of the sense of what you're saying. I mean, w what you're describing is, I think, how Darwin and Wallace and Spencer meant it, as we discussed in the episode. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't think they were they were saying anything incorrect when they used the phrase. We were talking more about the the uh, modern implications that people get from the baggage of these words, not right. that like Darwin and Wallace were incorrect in how they used it. Yeah, I mean, certainly the uh, words uh, words can change over time, or at least the uh, they can they can skew different directions, uh, and then we have to um, we have to uh, you know account for that. Also, words tend to uh, I mean, when there's a phrase like natural selection or survival of the fittest, we have to deal with the fact that. In, in Darwin's context, this is a phrase that's appearing within a book, you know, mm -hmm. so he's got a whole book to explain what he means. Right. Uh, but these phrases now are just sort of floating free within the culture and they're, you know, people invoke these phrases to explain how evolution works, but they might not necessarily bring with them all of the explanation that comes, uh, like, say, in On the Origin of Species. So you don't have a book in front of you all the time. You, you have to think about how phrases are just received in, in a vacuum. All right. Well, here's one. Uh, here's one of the Pokemon responses. This comes to us from Taylor. Hey, Robert and Joe. Taylor here, another longtime uh, fan and email writer. When Robert asked the audience to reach out with their Pokemon experiences at the end of Against Survival of the Fittest, it was a bespoke question for me. As a student of evolutionary biology and one of the biggest Pokemon nerds you'll ever meet, I couldn't resist saying everything I could. All right. So let's get right to it. When a Pokemon, quote unquote, evolves within the context of the game, it matures into a larger, more powerful form and, be and benefits from increased combat stats. While this might look like a terrible case of bigger batterism on the surface, the Pokemon franchise approaches adaptation and biodiversity with much more nuance than you might expect. While the game uses the term evolution to describe this growth, it's clear within the context of the game that Pokemon evolution is a descriptive uh, is, a, is, a, is descriptive of a Pokemon species uh, maturation and natural life cycle and not of natural selection. This distinction is especially clear when Pokemon evolution represents the metamorphosis of a species. For example, when the larval Pokemon Weedle evolves into the pupate Kakuna before emerging as the wasp-like Beedrill at the end of its life cycle, or when the tadpole-like uh, Dratini matures into the dopey amphibian dragon Pokemon called Dragonite, but wait, there's more. The Pokemon games also do a great job of describing symbiotic relationships, sexual dimorphism, and yes, even natural selection. <laughs> Many Pokemon species exhibit important symbiotic relationships. For example, the seafaring manta-like Pokemon Mantine is rarely depicted without a remoraid. 
<laughs> I like that. It's like the Gatorade of remoras. Yeah, that, that would be, I guess, it's, yeah, the, <laughs> the genesis there. Clinging to its underside. As you might have guessed, their relationship is illustrative of the real-life symbiosis of remoras and open ocean predators like blue sharks. Hmm. A lot of Pokemon also exhibit sexual dimorphism. One of my favorite examples is Burmy, a Pokemon based on real-life bagworm moths. Like their real-world counterparts, Burmy build protective cloaks around themselves out of whatever detritus is available to them. If you encounter Burmy with a forest, within a forest, it is covered in leaves, whereas a desert-dwelling Burmy would be covered in sand and pebbles. But it gets more interesting. Female Burmy exhibit neoteny. They evolve into Wormadam, a larger bagworm Pokemon that remains sessile. But male Burmy evolve into moth, uh, Mothim, a <laughs> flying insect that can flit from, one, from female to female. Another great example is the grouse-like Pokemon Unfazant, uh, whose uh, males boast resplendent plumage that the drab females lack. And Pokemon doesn't have uh, doesn't leave other examples of adaptation untouched. Several species illustrate coevolution, as is the case with Heatmore and Durant. Heatmore is an anteater Pokemon whose lava hot tongue allows it to bore through the metal exoskeleton of the insect Durant. The franchise is explicit in describing this predatory relationship's role in the evolution of both Heatmore's tongue and Durant's metal shell. Finally, the most recent generation of the games, Pokemon Sun and Moon, introduced regional variants. Sun and Moon take place on the Polynesian-themed islands of Aloha. Regional variants represent Pokemon species that have been introduced to Aloha from elsewhere in the Pokemon world and have adapted to life on the islands. For example, the armadillo-like Sandshrew and its mature form Sandslash are usually encountered in desert biomes. But in Aloha, their regional variants have adapted to frigid mountain caves and boast thicker bodies. Ultimately, Pokemon is a fantastical game. While I've put forth plenty of fascinating biology on display in the Pokemon world, there are still other Pokemon based on ghosts, golems, and inanimate objects, which may be unsurprising because of its Japanese origins. Nevertheless, I think it does a fantastic job of illustrating biodiversity and the mechanisms that relate to it. The Pokemon games shouldn't be a child's textbook for evolution, but for this childhood Pokemon fan become biologist, they played an extraordinary role in falling in love with the natural world. Cheers, Taylor. P.S. I highly recommend looking up images of the Pokemon I've described here because their designs are simply delightful. Let me show you my Pokemans. <laughs> Thank you so much, Taylor. You know what? You've brought me around. Yeah, I am not, uh, I am not a, a Pokemon nerd like you. I did not ever really get deep into Pokemon. I think the deepest I ever got was when that original Game Boy game play, came out. I played it, but I never finished it. Oh, yeah. I... The most I, I think I played when that, uh, that, that, that phone game came out recently that was all the craze where you find Pokemon on the streets. That had people wandering around waving their phones at stuff. Yeah, I checked that out of, out, out of curiosity and I think I, like I encountered a Pokemon in my house and then like I saw one down the street and then, um, the, but that was it. Uh-huh. But I, I appreciated what seemed possible with that game. Did that game not turn out to be a massive data mining operation? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't. I I have friends who I think still play it. Uh, uh-huh. Still really into it, and they enjoy going on like walks and and even trips and searching for Pokemon while they're out there. So uh, I don't know. I got to look into that more. But anyway, you've brought me around on the basic Pokemon concept. I love the Pokemans now, and you know what? Some of the illustrations are really great. You got me there. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, uh, we will leave the realm of Pokemon behind, and we will venture 
to the holy mountain. All right, we're back. So this is a straggler email that came in, I think, after the last uh, batch that we read about sacred mountains. And this is from our listener, Dave. Dave writes, hi, Robert and Joe. Uh, medium to long-time listener, first-time writer, I'm a big fan of your podcast and your new one, Invention. I'm writing in regard to the two episodes focused on sacred mountains. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm an amateur mountaineer. I wanted to share a couple of things with you that you were curious about from your listeners. First, I've experienced altitude sickness a few times, but the worst of it was when I summited Mount Whitney in California, the tallest peak in the country within the contiguous United States at 14,505 feet. My partner and I were hiking the Pacific Crest Trail in 2016 from Mexico to Canada. We had stopped off to meet my mom and toured around Las Vegas, the Eastern Sierra, and Death Valley National Park. So we went to Death Valley, which has the lowest point in the U.S. at 279 feet below sea level. Three or four days later, we were back on the trail in the heart of the Sierra and summited Mount Whitney. We had, oh, wow. we, we had lost all of our altitude acclimatization since we took a break, and it was certainly felt. I made it up the summit relatively fine, slowly moving to some degree. Then, on the way down, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I could barely move, had the worst migraine I'd ever had, and was completely disoriented. I felt like I was going to explode at both ends constantly. Eventually, I made it to camp at about 8,000 feet and recovered over the next 12 hours. I drank plenty of water, ate, and slept. After that, I was more or less back to normal. Secondly, you'd both mentioned when researching the episode you didn't come across any evil mountains, really. When I was listening, one popped into my head that I find fascinating. According to the Native American tribe, the Klamath, the good god is Mount Shasta in Northern California, and the evil god was Mount Mazama in Central Oregon. Apparently, 8,000 years ago, the two gods had an awesome battle and ultimately the good prevailed. This resulted in Mount Mazama exploding and collapsing in on itself and then creating the clearest and cleanest lake in the world, Crater Lake, huh. which uh, is an amazing place to go to if you've never been. Crater Lake is definitely worth the trip. Uh, David says, keep doing what you're doing, love your stuff, and he also attaches a photo of himself on Mount Whitney. Uh, he says, quote, before my world crashed in on me. <laughs> well, thanks, David. All right. Uh, here's another one that comes into uh, us, and this one, um, you, know, uh, you know, no one ever has to use their real name when they write in. Um, and this particular individual wrote in as Daddy. Uh, so, at any rate, this is what Daddy had to say. Uh, Dear Robert and Joe, I've been listening to your show for the last few months, and I would like to say thank you. You have provided me with such nutritious brain food. Uh, I have been uh, binging on episodes while working out in the fields. Mostly I sit cross-legged planting vegetables. While the setting is quite peaceful, the labor is quite monotonous. Listening to your podcast has prevented my mind from turning into mud. I have so many compliments and comments about various topics you discussed, but it would uh, make for quite the read. To save time, I have narrowed it down to a list of three. Number one, you both have such great taste in film. Well, <laughs> Many would disagree. Ar arguable, I guess, but, uh, but you know, I'm glad we see eye to eye. He continues, I, I, I was so excited when I started listening and discovered that many of the tapes you discuss I own on VHS because it's the only way to go. All right. Uh, also, films you have mentioned that I haven't seen, I now have to thank you also for the recommendations. Uh, then number two, The Cube. Oh. The 1997 film would make for a killer episode. Not only could you explore the science behind such a structure, I was reminded of the Library of Babel, but the themes submerged in the film would also provide quite the thought adventure. Have you seen Cube or any of its sequels, Joe? Yeah, it was, uh, it's been a while. I remember it... Uh... 
I remember it was a movie that definitely held my attention, but was also kind of bad. Yeah, I remember, I think I watched it like on the sci-fi channel on a Sunday afternoon, uh, uh-huh. uh, sort of a thing. And uh, I remember being intrigued by it because it does have an in- intriguing concept. Like it, yeah. it has certain Kafka-esque elements to it, you know, where people were trapped in this machine uh, that is lethal and full of lethal traps, uh-huh. but they don't know why they're in it or what purpose is it serving. And I think it's also, you know... It's stated or implied that, like, the people who made it were working on different parts of it and had no idea what the complete whole was. Yeah, I think one of the guys in the cube, it turns out, like, helped build it, but he didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah, and I think, like, those – some of those ideas are very thought-provoking. It gets into, you know, ideas of the panopticon and, uh, Mm. uh, you know, modern – just modern society itself – and, uh, and, and in a way, like the, this, the, the Cube movies, or at least the first one, you know, is kind of a predecessor to the Saw movies. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, kind of like elaborate traps yeah, and stuff. But yeah, but I feel like the elaborate traps were more uh, – the, the Cube set up for the elaborate traps, I, I think I far prefer than just like crazy serial killer with way too much time on their hands. Uh-huh. Uh, we got another exquisite movie uh, recommendation coming next, though. Oh, yes. Number three, Zardoz. It was somewhat offhandedly suggested by Joe in an episode. I cannot remember which, but yes, please. Perhaps you can break the tabernacle. <laughs> what did I say about Zardoz? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. Did I suggest science of Zardoz? Maybe you did, uh, because <laughs> we were probably talking about Highlander or Highlander Two. I, I've actually never seen Zardoz. It's uh, whoa. I know, I've, I've never checked it out. Whoa! This is a game changer. Robert, would you like to see Sean Connery with a long braided ponytail and a red diaper and a mustache? Uh, well, I, absolutely, I would, uh, especially if there's some sort of weird flying heads uh, oh, going the, on. Yeah, there's weird flying heads. That's and... all I know about it. But those two elements are alone are enough to, to get me there. Didn't somebody interesting do the music? Is there something about the music I that I should be aware music. of? Was, I think it was directed by the same guy who made uh, Deliverance. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, very, very strange movie. Anyway, I, I think both of those sound like solid suggestions. Uh, <laughs> we, I think we have yet to do a, a – so we, basically we've been doing these movie episodes where once a month generally we'll, we'll pick a movie and we'll use it as an excuse to you know, talk about topics we've discussed before but in light of the film or as a way to talk about topics that might not otherwise come up on the show in their own episode. And generally there's some sort of a, you know, approach to be made there. We've talked about stuff like – 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Dark Crystal. We've talked about Highlander 2. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about Silent Running. Um, am I missing one in there? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I'm... Maybe, yeah. At, at any rate, it's a fun exercise, and we're ho- hoping to continue doing it, and it's and we, we enjoy hearing recommendations from folks. Maybe one day we'll even come out, we'll cover a movie that came out in the last couple of decades. <laughs> we seem to be, uh, you know, uh, narrowing in on, like, what, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, thus far. Why would we change that? Yeah, it's, it's a golden age, right? But it's not just old media that we talk about on this show. We also talk about new media. We also talk about social media. Oof. Um, so, and, and that can sometimes be quite a doozy. Social media is certainly, it is the cube and the Zardoz of our world. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's the tabernacle, it's the cube maze, really, it's all those things. The cube, cube, actually, that whole scenario we just talked about, about people creating this thing, uh, working on their individual um, corners of it. It's a giant murderous weapon full yeah, of traps. Yeah, and, and ultimately making a, a giant murder machine. 
Um, I think there are a lot of comparisons to be made between that and uh, various big name social media platforms, mm-hmm. um, which I think we'll be exploring in greater detail in, in subsequent episodes of the show. But we have been discussing aspects of it already. Yeah, well, let's talk about some listener feedback to the episode we did about the Doppelganger Network, where we discussed uh, the idea, of course, of doppelgangers and all that. But then also we discussed an article uh, by Robert Sapolsky, the neuroendocrinologist, uh, where he made a connection between the uh, psychological syndrome known as Capgras delusion, where people tend to believe that the people they know have been replaced by imposters or doubles or doppelgangers. That and the kinds of psychological effects that are brought about by social media and he and the main comparison he makes is that uh, social media may be causing a similar kind of uh, situation of recognition without familiarity uh, and its inverse. So – now, one of the things we talked about in that episode, of course, is, you know, often Robert and I, uh, especially lately, are, are, we will tend to gripe about the evils of social media. And we talked about the possibility of could anything be improved if you just took the corporate influence out of it and just had like nonprofit open source social media platforms. Mm-hmm. I do want to reiterate my feeling that even if we took the corrupting influence of the profit motive out of these platforms, I'm still not sure they'd be a good thing. I, th- I think it's highly possible they could still over. Overall, like even a nonprofit open source Facebook might be a bad thing for the world. Right. And I also want to drive home to come back to the cube scenario is that a lot of the the, the people that we've been reading on this topic, like they're not saying that there is, um, I think uh, Jaron Lanier uh, uses this exact uh, phrase and he says that there's not, he doesn't believe that say at Facebook that there is there's a room, there's like an evil room in which an evil person plots out evil things for this particular uh, company. No. That, that it, it emerges more like the, the death machine in, in Cube. Yeah. Where, where a company's trying to do various things, and some of those things may be quite noble uh, or, or at least have noble ambitions to them. Other things have far more corporate uh, uh, leanings. And all of these things like come together in the just like bake in the the, the alchemy of uh, of a major corporation, and then the results uh, may not be the best for us. Yeah, uh, and so so it's there's no guarantee all of these negative effects that we associate with social media platforms would go away if you say like distributed the creation of that platform and took away the profit motive, but it still might possibly be a step in the right direction. So we were asking about this and several listeners got in touch to name a few things. One is Keith, who's a data scientist and software developer. He mentions a few platforms that are open source or uh, nonprofit social media platforms. Quote, the main one I'd like to point out is Mastodon. This one has been gaining in traction and is pretty much a clone of Twitter. Some major differences are that it's open source and they also encourage users to self-host so you can use the code to have your own social media. The main site says that there are 320,000 users, which is not a large amount, but it is growing. I'd also like to note some more obscure social media. There are chat room social media platforms like Discord and Slack where communities form. Two open source alternatives are Gitter and Rocket Chat. Uh, so I hadn't uh, heard of those. I think maybe I'd heard of Mastodon, but I didn't really know what it was. Mainly I'm just familiar with the band, uh, right. which I don't think have any involvement in this uh, this at all. We're a thrash metal platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Mastodon, of course, local local band. Uh, occasionally uh-huh. I will, uh, I'll run into folks from Mastodon at various events. It's great seeing them around Atlanta, yeah. yeah. If there was one band member in particular that, uh, um, and I'm, 
I, I'm not like I'm not super familiar familiar with Mastodon, but one of the members of Mastodon has like really cool sideburns uh-huh. or has in the past. Yeah, and I would occasionally see him at different events, and I would like kind of look at him and I'd be like, "Hey, that guy's got some pretty good sideburns," you know. And I'm kind of like admiring his sideburns from afar, and then he'll kind of look back at me, and there'll be like kind of a not a look of fear, but a look of like like you know like I'm staring at him, you know. And I'll oh no, but and I didn't I didn't put it together till later that I'm like oh he's in a famous band. And he thought that I was maybe like, you know, uh, you know, fanboying out and that might like I might approach him and, uh, you know, disrupt, uh, you know, whatever he's doing. And really, I was just <laughs> admiring his sideburns. Um, anyway, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> uh, but I, I also admire their music. Let, uh, let me be clear on that. Oh, yeah. I think they are, they are top tier modern metal. Okay, uh, so I think uh, let's look at this next email from Sammy. This one came in after the Doppelganger Network episode. Sammy says, hey, guys, I just started listening to your new episode, The Doppelganger Network, and you brought up Capcross Syndrome. I've never heard of it, uh, and at first when you guys said that this famous French woman uh, thought her loved ones were replaced by doppelgangers, I thought, how is this even possible? But as you started explaining it more, uh, as when the face recognition part of our brain knows it's someone we know, but the feeling of familiarity does not arise, I started thinking, this is what I have. I was diagnosed with depression about eight years ago and put it on an SSRI. But as I started my treatment and doing research, my dad and I came across a term called depersonalization. This is exactly what you described, when you know you know the person you see, but you don't feel the warmth of familiarity. In the first two years of my illness, I dealt with this probably about 90% of the time. It was horrifying seeing my parents, my friends, my boyfriend, and knowing I'm supposed to feel something, but I don't. Quite a few times I almost broke up with my boyfriend because I felt guilty that I didn't love him. At the peak of this, when I was uh, with my therapist, I told her, if you brought another man into this room and told me he was my dad, I'd believe you. Fortunately now, several years later, I rarely experience episodes like this. My last full-on depersonalization episode was about two years ago. However, to this day, I hold myself back from certain situations because I know that they have caused me to have these episodes in the past. Anyways, I felt immense gratitude when you guys mentioned this in the first part of the episode because this issue is something I find so hard to explain to people, but you guys and Sapolsky put it into the perfect words. I don't know if what I have dealt with is related to this syndrome— as I don't think people have been replaced, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, my official diagnosis now is panic disorder. Thank you for everything you guys do. You're one of the three podcasts I always listen to, Sammy. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for sharing with us, but also mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really glad to hear you're doing better these days. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think as we try and stress on the podcast, you know, anybody out there, if you're experiencing, if you ever find yourself experiencing uh, symptoms that we're discussing on the show, um, I mean, certainly there are dangers in self uh, self evaluation, but don't hesitate to to ask a professional uh, about what you're feeling and to bring it to their attention. Yeah, uh, uh, I think that is always a it's always a wise move. That's what that's what they're there for, and they're the ones that can uh, can ultimately help you uh, or or tell you that you're if you're if you are worrying about nothing, if you are you know self diagnosing based on a podcast and jumping to conclusions, like they're they're the ones to uh, to rein you in on that as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, nothing nothing good ever comes out of keeping stuff like this hidden. If mm-hmm. you are experiencing symptoms like this, it's important to talk to your loved ones about it, to seek professional help. Uh, these are not the kind of things that it's best to deal with on your own. Right. 
Now, as but again, though, as for uh, social media inducing symptoms like this in a on a more widespread scale, uh, I mean that's kind of new territory in some regards. Yeah, um, I wonder. I wonder how the therapeutic world is is currently, uh, you know, adapting to all of this, and how they will be adapting in the near future. Uh, because I mean, I, I look at my own experience with, say, Facebook, and I go on there. And I think what I, I experience some like level of just large scale depersonalization with everybody on there these days. I feel yeah. like I I'm not encountering real versions of the people that I know or knew, and that I am not presenting a real version of the person I am. And it's 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 weird and and off putting. And uh, and granted, some of this may be due to some of the research uh, we've been doing. I mean, it certainly mm-hmm. uh, is a possibility. But I also think a large part of it is the platforms. Uh, again, we'll hopefully be discussing more of this in future episodes of the show. Yeah, totally. Uh, but also, I just want to say again, we're really glad to hear you're doing better, Sammy, and best of luck in the future. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Kate. Hi, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Recently listened to your episode about doppelgangers. At one point, you were talking about parasocial relationships and start listing some examples, but you completely forgot to mention the very medium you were using, podcasts. <laughs> Sometimes I listen to podcasts more than I communicate with my friends, family, or even boyfriends. There was a time when I used to, cons- used to consider Ira Glass from This American Life like a brother, Stephen Dubner from Freakonomics like a father figure, and still to this day, you guys are like my friends. Interesting that this is based purely on personality and nothing to do with age. Uh, Stephen Dubner, 55 years old, uh, is younger than Ira Glass, 60 years old. I have mentioned this to friends, and they have also uh, revealed that uh, they consider some of the podcast hosts they listen to like their friends. I would uh, never consider these parasocial relationships as a negative because it genuinely enriches many of my face-to-face relationships. Thank you. Anyway, uh, FYI, the Myths and Legends podcast did an amazing episode about people in real life who have experiences seeing their doppelgangers. Definitely worth a listen, and she includes a link. Uh, but the, uh, and I won't read the whole link, but basically the website is mythpodcast.com. Uh, so that sounds like a fun one to check out. Always, always happy to check out new podcasts, uh, especially if they concern something like mythology. Yeah. Uh, so I, I will try to give that a look if I find some time. But also, I have to report, yeah, I, I sometimes have a feeling like this. I mean, you can definitely, when listening to a podcast, start to feel like the people you're listening to are just your buddies, mm-hmm. you know, especially if it's a conversational podcast. Yeah. Uh, I, I have had this experience plenty of times, I think. Um, and yeah, I guess the question about whether, you know, whether these count as parasocial relationships and whether or not they're destructive, I think, is a question of what role they play in, in your life. Because, yeah, I've also had the experience of listening to podcasts and sort of feeling when I'm listening to these people talk like they're my buddies. But I, I think it's OK because I don't find them like preventing me from spending time with my real friends or my real loved ones. Right. Um, if if I did find that, that it was like interfering with my relationships, I think I would be concerned then. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, certainly I would be concerned if if a listener showed just showed up at my doorstep and wanted to borrow my Xbox or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like that would probably be right. I mean, line. also, yeah, it's important to have like realistic perspective and know that, you know, while it can feel like you're being social with people when you listen to a podcast, of course, you know, you, they're not actually your friend. You know, you don't actually know right. each other. Well, like uh, say take um, uh, Paul Kennedy, uh, the host of Ideas, yeah. uh, the CBC radio show. I've spoken on uh, spoken about it on the show before because it's one of my favorites. Favorites. Uh, and like I can, I can catch myself kind of 
looking at Paul Kennedy kind of like a father or grandfather figure. You uh-huh. know? Um, and uh, you know, especially since uh, you know, I don't, I don't really have any of, of I don't have a, a real father or grandfather figure in my life anymore. So maybe I'm more inclined to to find that in uh, in an individual from the uh, you know from the the the, uh, the podcast world. But I think it's ultimately like this particular example, like it's it's a healthy attachment. Like, yeah. Like you don't think you're actually going to go like meet Paul Kennedy, or right? Something. Right. I I I I know Paul Kennedy does not know me, and you know, ultimately he's just this this friendly voice that shares uh, you know wonderful topics with me via this medium of podcast and. Uh, and yeah, I think it's it, that that is a, a beneficial parasocial relationship if that is indeed what it is. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it to me, and I, I I hope we can only be if we are a parasocial relationship for anybody. I hope we can only be a beneficial one. Uh, don't mm-hmm. don't don't let our voices replace your real relationships with your friends and family. They're more important. Go talk to them about fatbergs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's you know that's that's ultimately what uh, what I, lo- I love to hear from listeners is when we've been able to turn you onto a topic and then you know like you can then you pick it up and you run with it mm-hmm. or you take it out and you share it with people and you sh- and it becomes a you know conversation it becomes uh, at least a catalyst for you to then go out and uh, interact with the world interact with uh, with with friends and family members and make new friends uh, make new family members for that matter um, if if such is possible with some of our topics. Uh, you know, I think that's that, that's ultimately the, the the best case scenario for any any episode that we put out there. Not that I I don't think I've ever heard of anybody like actually acquiring a new family member through the show, but I would love to hear if, they, if anybody out there has ever met uh, a significant other uh, through uh, listening to our show. I would absolutely love to hear about that. Oh my God! Yes, please send us your stories if that happens. Yeah, maybe Fatberg is doing it right now somewhere <laughs> out there. A love story is brewing through um, just strangers meeting and talking about the Fatberg episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It's a romance between Soap Lady and Fatberg Cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be the sequel, right? Uh-huh. Fatberg 2, Fatberg's in Love. <laughs> Look who's saponificating now. There you go. All right. Well, uh, hey, we, we have a whole stack of emails here that Carney, the mailbot, brought us. We were not able to read them all at all. Uh, but we 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 did what we could. We read some of them. There are plenty that we read to ourselves, and you know, and uh, we didn't read on the show. Uh, but hey, some of them we'll save for next time. And we encourage everyone to keep writing in. You have thoughts about episodes. You have corrections about episodes. Uh, you have criticisms. You have little tidbits to share. Uh, we love to hear from everybody. Uh, we'll share the email address here at the end of the the show. Mm-hmm. You can also reach out to us. The main way, really is if you go to the Facebook group associated with the show, which is uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Uh, that's probably one of the better ways to interact with us these days. And, of course, StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. That's our O&O website, as they say. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show uh, and various other bits of information that you might need. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison, and to our uh, guest producer today, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.